I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but there's only one place in all the universe where who Jesus is is not known. There's not one being, whether a redeemed human already there or those strange and wondrous creatures that are around the throne of God or the angelic beings of seraphim and cherubim and ranks of angels, myriad upon myriad upon myriad of angels. There's not one being in all of heaven who for one second doubts who Jesus is. And there is not a being in all of hell below. In that eternal place of banishment, there's not one being there that does not know who Jesus is. Earth and this world at the present is the only place where people do not know who he is. And I wonder if you just take stock for a moment that here we are. And I would assume for the most part, we have come to know who he is. More than that, we've actually come to know him in personal, relational experience. Christ, the Lord God Almighty. What a wonder that is. Don't you feel privileged to be a believer and to know him and understand who he is? Well, we're returning to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. And as we do, it's a fairly simple message probably won't hardly be a thing here that you don't already know, but a lot of teaching is meant uh, for that very purpose, to repeat and reinforce what you as a believer have come to know and appreciate and value. And um, so this morning's message, the title of it is, Our Enduring Cause for Rejoicing. And I really was thinking about the tens of thousands of fellow believers in the Ukraine who have either left Ukraine and are part of that mass of three, what is it now, 3.3 million people that escaped for their lives, mostly women and children, or those who still remain. Three million's not that big of a chunk when you have 44 million people in the country. And there they are, tens of thousands of our fellow believers. And I ask myself, Tony, do they have any good cause, any good reason for enduring joy? Can they rejoice even in those circumstances? Is that even feasible, possible? So I want to talk about that today. But we're going to be looking at the opening four verses. We're not going to take a big chunk, just a short chunk. Four verses, and in these four verses, we'll be looking at three glimpses into the Apostle Paul's heart, something of his own heart. So let's read, read the passage first. Follow with me. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, 
In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. As we look at these four verses, there are ways that we could have approached it. I could have approached the the thrust of the commands that are in these passages. In verse 1, it is stand firm in the Lord. In verse 2, it is live in harmony in the Lord. And in verse 4, it is, well, share my st- who share my struggle in the cause of Christ, the rest of these believers whose names are in the book. And then the third one is rejoice, therefore, in the Lord always. So we could have approached it that way. But sometimes when I'm looking at a passage of Scripture, I just kind of get a glimpse into Paul's heart, remembering that he's imprisoned, remembering that this is one of the prison epistles and he is in difficult circumstances, for the most part cut off from fellow believers. And so he's writing this, and I think I want to look into his heart. What's coming forth from his heart? And the first thing I want you to see in verse 1 is his affection for them as beloved brethren. Listen to the language Paul uses. Therefore, my beloved brethren. And he ends ends it with my beloved. Those are words of affection. He loves these believers. He values these believers. He sees their significance to the heart of God, which he now shares with his own heart some of whom he had led to faith in Christ and helped to grow there in Philippi. And now they have shared with others and the gospel has gone forth and there's a church there, a growing church there. There's a little warning there. You know, I've, some, I, you guys, I, some pastors have taken up verse, uh, verse 2 and just um, really taken off on the evils of of disunity and, I mean, bam, man, they just really come at the church about getting along with each other and really hit it hard. And I just don't sense that in this passage. He's urging them, but it's really a a loving urging. It's, hey, come on, ladies. You two women that are, there's friction between you, come on. You're citizens of heaven. Christ is going to transform you when he comes for you. You have so much going for you as a believer. What is this petty squabbling going on among you? And I just don't sense it as heavy as some have taken it to be. He just simply says, live in harmony. Put down your petty grievances. The gospel is much greater. And he even reminds them of that, doesn't he? After that little correction, he says, these women who shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. He's reminding them of what's more valuable. 
so his affection. Secondly, his appreciation of them as fellow workers. Look there at uh, the third verse. Indeed, true comrade or companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. His appreciation for the fact that they're not just sitting on the sidelines as believers waiting to go home in heaven, to heaven. They are rather engaged in serving and helping and assisting and having an impact and making a difference in the lives of others. These are fellow workers in the cause of the spread of the gospel and bringing more people to faith in Christ. And so the first two things in his heart that I see is affection for them and also appreciation for them. Just like the appreciation I feel for Rick Hansen, who sort of hesitantly, I don't know why, he's a wonderful teacher, who sort of backtracked at first but then said, yep, I'll, I'll fill in for you when you're gone. And Rick brought a wonderful message. And he's been an elder and a fellow servant for years and years here. And how I appreciate him. And the others on the team, fellow workers, uh, together for the gospel. But the third one is the one I really want us to drill down on. Paul's affirmation of them as registered citizens. You see how verse 3 ends? The rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Do you know what? This is the problem with the way we market the Bible. There's probably not a Christian gift center or Christian bookstore or gift store that you could go to where you would not find that verse 4 on a beautiful plaque, decoupaged or wood-burned or something. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Out of its context, of course, it's a wonderful verse, but it doesn't have its context. Paul just got finished saying, stand firm, live in harmony. I'm grateful for you. I have affection and appreciation for you, dear believers. And then he says, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice. And it seems to me that the context presses us to realize that this rejoicing that we're to have is a transcendent joy. It's a joy that looks beyond this world and looks beyond its hardships and its cruelties and its depravity and its darkness, looks beyond the hardships and things, the uncertainty of it all. Have you ever in your lifetime lived at a time of greater uncertainty than the present hour? I haven't. We don't know what's about to occur, but we know whose hand is holding it all, right? The sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. You have established your throne in the heavens and your sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 103. I think it's verse 19. 
The sovereign God holds it all together. And yet, we live down here. And we see what's going on. And in some ways, our hearts break. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. But that rejoicing has content. It has cause. It has reason. In fact, the reason for this joy is enduring. Just as enduring as Jesus Christ himself because your names are written in the book of life. Now, this caught my attention, you guys, so I dug down into it a little bit, and I thought, I wonder if the Bible says much about the book of life. And so I started, of course, the law, the opening five books, and sure enough, I found it. Moses spoke of the book, that eternal book of the redeemed. And then the Psalms, David speaks of the book of life as well, that book of the redeemed. And then I came to the prophets, and Malachi also spoke of it. He writes, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his great name. They will be mine says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. So even the prophets spoke of that book. And then we come into the New Testament, and we find that Jesus did as well. Jesus spoke of the book. In fact, you will, I won't have you turn to it, but you remember the scene. The Lord had been training the twelve. And then he expanded the training of the twelve apostles to seventy. And in Luke chapter 10, it says that he prepared them, gave them instructions, told them, go out in my name and preach the gospel, heal the sick, um, cast out demons, help the people, and I give you authority. I delegate my power and authority to you. And he said, if you go to a place and they receive you, then let your peace and joy be upon that place. If you go to a city or a, a village or a or some little hamlet, and they stiff-arm you, repudiate you, and reject you, then don't lose your confidence. Instead, dust off your feet on the way out of that town as a protest against them, but say to them, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. Confidence, resilience, boldness in his name. Well, they go out, right? these fledgling disciples. And the next thing Luke says is, and upon returning, the 70 came. And it says they came back rejoicing. Rejoicing at what the Lord had done through them as they went out to speak to people and to reach them. And it says, Lord, even the, even the demons were subject to us in your name. And they are just practically intoxicated with what just happened when they went out carrying the power of the, of the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus turns to them and he says a few things. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, for I've given you power over all serpents and scorpions, and so on. He says those things. But then he turns to them and he says this, yet do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name. 
but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Isn't that great? Rejoicing and names written in heaven. I thought to myself, I wonder if Dr. Luke, who was the companion of Paul, who followed him in his travels and penned the, uh, the second in his series, the book of Acts, I wonder if Luke had shared with Paul some of what he was writing and the two of them had discussed that and why Paul follows this to the Philippians whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice always and again. I said, you think there's maybe a connection? Maybe. But I do know this, nothing can take that enduring joy away from us. If you're a believer in Christ and you know him and you've trusted him, there, is, there has been inscribed, and think of this, someone inscribed my name for me, and he did it in a book that's not mine. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And not only did he do that, but he did that before my parents ever existed who gave me my name. How sovereign is God? Did my mom and dad know they were writing a name that had already been written before the foundation of the earth? I don't think they did. But God did, right? Think of that. Your parents gave you a name. And Jesus says, your name is written in heaven. It is inscribed by the hand of God. And it was done so before the foundations of the earth. How big and how great is this plan of redemption? And the love of God's heart for his own. In the great persecution that takes place at the end of the age, when the, the world and its nations become in such turmoil, there's such confusion, Jesus said men's hearts failing out of fear of what was coming upon the world, a man rises out of that sea. He's Antichristos. The Antichrist rises. And he has answers for all these problems. He has answers for all these wars. He's going to bring peace. And with it, cleansing of society so that it can be more healthy. Does that sound familiar to any of you? And you read that in the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation. And John says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. And when you come to chapter 20, there's a scene of the great white throne judgment where this mass, innumerable mass of people stand before God. And books are opened, and another book is opened, which is the book of life. Incredible. When you get to chapter 21 of Revelation, we see the city and the beauty of the new Jerusalem and the glory of that city and its splendor and just 
jaw-dropping excellence in every conceivable way, shining with the glory of God, this city that God's prepared for his redeemed. But it, it gives a warning. It says, and in fact, Bryce read this to our home group not long ago, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination, which means pollution of all kinds, and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Wow. In Matthew chapter 25, speaking of the last day and the end of the age, Jesus told a parable and he says, And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And in Ephesians 1.4, we're told, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world of the world. And in 2 Timothy 1.9 we read, the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. I'm staggered by that idea. As simple as it is, it just never really struck me like that, that in 1957, on April 13th, my mom had reached 10 centimeters and was pushing. And I was breech. And she had a time with it. And back then, they just worked on you to turn the baby. They didn't jump to C-section back then unless it was, there was no other, and, our, and doctor, our doctor, he just kept pushing and shoving and moving until he got me turned around. I've needed that, pushing and shoving to be turned around my whole life. My, that's the story of my life. And then the doctor came in with certificates and spoke to my mom and my dad. What do you want to name this boy? And God said, without them knowing it, I'll tell you what to name him. I've already named him. Because his name is in the Lamb's book of life from before the creation of the world. Now you just let that soak for a minute. Because that's true of every child of God. Isn't that a wonder? What do you say to a God who's too big, too great, too wise, too all-knowing? What do you say? But, wow, right? Wow. <laughs> uh. Well, I want to conclude this way. Oh, and in case you were wondering, why does that third point say his affirmation to them as registered citizens? Because he just got finished telling them at the end of chapter 3, for your citizenship is in heaven, right? Now he's talking about their names written in the book, the register. Isn't that amazing? Levi didn't know 
Kai didn't know. Abigail didn't know. Linda didn't know, right? Kaylee and Caitlin, they didn't know that God was leading their parents and what to name them, but he was. Well, let's end this way. Having believed the gospel, assuming you all have, and if you haven't, you can this morning before you leave this little chapel. Having believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, of, that he came, that he lived a spotless, holy life, that he became our substitute and took our judgment upon himself by taking our sins to the cross and dying in our place. Having died and been buried on the third day, he was raised from the dead. He conquered the grave. He conquered hell. He conquered everything that this world threw at him. And he did so that he might redeem a people for the, for the glory of his name and the eternal benefit and blessing of them all. What a Savior he is. So if you have believed the gospel and received Christ as your Lord, your Savior, your everything, I ask these questions. Are you not then in God's family and therefore one of the beloved brethren? Are you not in God's service, serving others, helping others, wanting the Lord to use you in the lives of others? Are you not, therefore, then one of, one of the fellow workers? And are you not named and written in the Lamb's Book of Life and, therefore, a registered citizen of heaven's glory? If so, what then? If so, what then? Pastor, what's your point? Well, I can't even begin to tell you the point. It's too big for me. Let, let me just throw a few things out as we finish up. If you're his and your name is registered in the Lamb's Book of Life, in Christ you have an acceptance that can never be questioned. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who is he that condemns? Christ is the one who died, yea, rather, who is risen from the dead and who is at the right hand of God on our behalf. In Christ you have an inheritance that can never be lost. It's imperishable, undefiled, enduring in heaven for those who are kept by the power of God unto a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. You have a deliverance that can never be excelled. 2 Corinthians 1.10. You have grace that can never be limited. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich, rich in the glorious grace of God. In Christ you have a hope that can never disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit. In Christ you have wealth and blessing that will never be with, 
drawn and cannot be estimated. For you have become an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ himself. In Christ you have a nearness to God that can never be reversed. In fact, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which is God's down payment or guarantee until your redemption. In Christ you have a peace that can never be disturbed. Never, because that peace is a peace that Christ gives us. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Peace I give to you, not as the world gives. My peace, undisturbed, undisturbed and perfect. Trust in me, my peace. Passing all understanding. You've been given in Christ a righteousness that can never be tarnished. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In Christ you have a salvation that cannot be revoked or canceled. A salvation a salvation as sure as eternity itself. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them from my hand. In fact, my Father, who is greater than all who gave them to me, no one can snatch them from my Father's hand. I and my Father were one in this. We are one in this assuring, securing, saving purpose. In Christ, we have enduring, we have cause for enduring joy and rejoicing because our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Aren't you grateful? Isn't that a wonder? I mean, honestly, I, I believe this to be so literally true that there is a register. I don't know what it looks like, but I guarantee you that you could go down it page after page or monument after monument, whatever it is where God has them etched with his own finger. Your name as a child of God is inscribed there. That's why it seems so strange. And I return to this, and I suppose I do because I'm getting older, you guys. The older I get, the more I think about it. That I live with this tension. Like Paul said in chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he goes on to say, and which one of these should I choose? I'm hard-pressed from both directions. I want to be here for you, Paul says. I want to have more fruit among you and for your benefit and for the growth and your faith and your walk. I want to be here to, to, to be of benefit to you and yet to be with Christ. <laughs> Nothing compares with that. It's far better, he says. 
So in some sense, the believer just can't lose. You're winning if you stay and serve and love the Lord and continue to grow, and you're winning if you're out of here. Either way, you're his, right? And so the older I get, the more accustomed this strange sense of homesickness has become. Homesick for a place I've never been. Aren't you? We're going to see him, guys. We are going to see him face to face. What will that day be? What will that moment be when you gaze into the eyes of the one who loved you, rescued you, gave himself for you, and you have spent your life trusting and getting to know better? Isn't it something to be a Christian? It is. Yeah, the world doesn't understand this. That's okay. God does. The whole thing's his idea. (laughs) You're his idea. And by the way, it's not part of the message, but I forgot to... Glenna, it is so good to see you. We have missed you. We have missed you. And prayed for you throughout. And... um, We're glad this pandemic thing is starting to get behind us, aren't you? I know you are. All right. Well, I'm going to stop at that. Kathy's going to have a song for us.